When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome to the Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. If you caught this week's latest Real Sports, you know that in the tradition of our show, the December episode featured not new stories, but instead a wide-ranging look back on the year that was. So for this edition of the podcast, we too will be getting a bit retrospective, discussing 2021 and the issues, the stories, the people that dominated sports over the last 12 months. To help us do so, we thought we'd bring on a guest who has no shortage of insights and opinions, sports commentator Bomani Jones. Starting in 2022, he'll be hosting a new weekly late-night series on HBO called Game Theory with Bomani Jones, and we're glad to have him with us now. Bomani, thanks so much for coming on to chop it up and reminisce about the year in sports. Ah, glad to be here. So... After the uh, the bubble year of 2020, I was really hoping we wouldn't feel compelled to start a 2021 year in review show discussing COVID. But alas, here we are. Kyrie Irving, Novak Djokovic, Aaron Rodgers. There have been these, these few individuals whose vaccine stances have garnered a ton of attention and raised the question of whether star athletes ought to use their influence to communicate responsible public health practices at a time like this. So in your mind, the notion of athletes being held to a higher standard during a pandemic, fair or foul? I don't even think that they're being held to a higher standard um, on either side of this, to be honest. Like, do I think it would be better for somebody in Djokovic's position, for example, to advocate for vaccination? Yeah, I think that would probably be for the greater good. My bigger problem is when those people advocate against like I don't. And, and who knows? A bunch of them might really think that they got a point here and they think they're saving everybody from whatever is in those vials. I don't see it that way. I think that they're doing damage and stuff in that regard. But it's worth noting that your opinion being go get vaccinated. Nobody's writing a headline about that because that's far closer to the median. So the stars in particular jump out when they have these stances that seem to be opposed to the idea of getting vaccinated against COVID-19. But I really think it comes down to the fact that the people who advocate for not taking the vaccine typically sound a little kooky when they do so, and therefore they jump out. But then I take that to mean you don't have a problem with a LeBron James taking a neutral position, saying, yeah, I might be vaccinated, but it's not my place to speak publicly about what I would recommend or urge my millions of fans to do A or B. 
Well, it, it depends on who we're talking about. So with LeBron, I do have a problem with neutrality because he has kind of assigned himself to be a leader of the people, right? Like, you don't get to back out on this one talking about, I don't want to offend anybody. Like, if you really are as invested as he says in the greater good, then I think that this would be a time for him to stand up on that. I personally found during the pandemic that, you know, sports can serve as therapy. We love watching games. We love playing games. But we also get caught up arguing about Kyrie Irving, debating the public health implications of holding an Olympics in the middle of a pandemic. We put 100,000 people in a stadium in what could, I guess, become a super spreader event. Do you think sports writ large have done more to help or hurt during the pandemic? I think it's probably neutral. Like a lot of things that we were afraid of turned out to not be as bad as we thought they were. Like we have to remember that if we're talking about 18 months prior to now, like it's, yeah, about 18 months, we still didn't know much, right? Like we were, there was an argument for operating with the absolute abundance of caution because we had no idea what was going on. Like we needed to stop. We needed to take a beat. We needed to figure out what was going on. And the way to do that was everybody sit their ass down. That was what was important in that time. As we've learned a little more, like, for example, you're unlikely to catch COVID while participating in a sporting event, right? Like, we have not heard about cross-team transmissions in games where you look at the Cleveland Browns right now and they got a zillion people that are on their COVID list. It doesn't mean that the people on the other side were then catching it from them, right? Like, that we have learned that there can be a level of participation, right? But it's still so terrifying for a lot of people and still so much that's going on that it's hard to know reasonably what you're supposed to dial back on, right? And so what I think has happened is having the activities themselves to watch, if you believe that they're good generally, then it's been good to have. No better than it would have been necessarily at another time, but it's been good for us to have the games to watch and the entertainment and the economy that goes around it. Yeah, I would argue that that has been good. Now, some of these arguments that have come up around it, like Kyrie Irving, who just becomes a proxy in a bit of a war, an argumentative war that people want to have about stuff, we do that anyway. That just happened to be the thing that we picked that we were going to use to have this argument about Kyrie Irving or anything else. If it wasn't this, we would go find ourselves another argument. We are adept at seeking out the argument. Yeah, for sure. Moving on from COVID, one thing that you couldn't miss in sports in 2021 was the mainstream embrace of legal gambling, right? Everywhere you look, ads on TV, sponsorship deals with stadiums, sports media entities partnering with casinos. You know, people have been betting billions on sports for a long time. Now it's just increasingly happening over the table. Any issue in your eyes with that new normal? I don't have an issue with it necessarily, but I do think that the average viewer enjoys sports not as a transaction, right? And we are kind of like in the way that this is being done, so much of it is being reduced to a transaction. Like the question to me is going to be, is the day going to come when the pregame football show or the postgame football show is not worried about who won the game, but is worried about who covered the spread, right? Like if the, if the Monday morning analysis stops being about the game itself, and turns into an analysis of the line. Like, will that happen? I find that to be unlikely because I think the narrative stuff is what keeps people hooked. But the gambling houses are going to be the ones that are pumping the money into this and keeping this whole thing going afloat. So, I mean, I don't think that all of this is going to make things better. I don't think it's going to ruin everything necessarily. You know, like we always had gambling content just kind of thrown in. Like, you don't think about it, but Chris Berman doing the Swami thing on Thursdays every week for decades was always against the spread. I just didn't understand how many people actually gambled 
or that someone would be willing to take gambling advice with Chris Berman. Well, but for all those people you're talking about who might roll their eyes when they see them talking about the spread in the pregame, how many people are there who don't want to watch Jaguars Raiders on Thursday night except for the bet they placed? And now the broadcast isn't hiding from the fact that there are millions of people like that, right? Yeah, I think there's something to that, but I don't, I feel like that stuff only really matters at the end, right? You know, so like if you want to talk about like, oh, I think we're definitely going to hit the under tonight. Okay, but you say that once. And then that right there kind of goes away. Like, I think that the whole paradigm of how we talk about games as they're going is about winners and losers. It's not about who covers. And I just want to see how that evolves. Well, another big change we saw in 2021 was the start of the name, image, and likeness era in college sports. We had been talking about this sort of change for so many years. And now that it's here, Bomani, you have predictably your proponents, your critics, What have you taken away from year one of NIL? What I had not given proper credence to was what this is going to do is get us kind of college football of the 1970s and 1980s, which is to say a lot of money is going to be flying around and that greatly changes the possibilities on who will and will not be good, right? So there's a story this week that Eric Dickinson and three other players at SMU are starting a fund where the four of them will pledge a million dollars per year for NIL deals for players who go to SMU. And SMU, of course, famously got shut down in 1987 for all the money that they were throwing around in the 80s in the Wild West days of the Southwest Conference. But I was on the wiki the other day and I was looking at the slush fund that SMU legendarily had. And the only number I saw for the amount that was kept in the slush fund was $61,000. Now, this is $61,000 in 1980s money. So don't get me wrong. I recognize it's not the same as $61,000 now, but it also ain't no million. They're pooling a million dollars in here. And so what has happened here is a whole lot of schools got a chance to get a whole lot better really fast and disrupt the status quo of the NCAA, which they have never tolerated, ever. But what's interesting to me about that is you hear so many coaches, Lane Kiffin said something about it this week, about how this is just going to create competitive imbalance. That's an argument you've heard a lot. Oh, no. It is going to create more competitive balance than it takes away from competitive balance, right? You make everything, quote unquote, free, right? Nobody's, you know, no, everybody's offering the same compensation, then that's going to lead to the Alabamas and everybody else in the world consistently getting the best players. Like right now, Three schools recruit on a level completely different than everybody else in college football. Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio State. Everybody else is a significant jump below them. Like, that's the competitive balance of right now when supposedly people can't get any money. But what every school has is a couple of crazy rich people. Every single one of them does. But in this last year or so, especially with all the money that people have saved in the course of the pandemic— And the big gains on assets, right? So all the money that people are making on crypto, the gains that people are making on homes that they own and real estate and stuff like that. People have got a lot of money to blow and they didn't all go to Alabama, Georgia, or Ohio State. SMU got rich people and history has shown us that SMU loves to spend money to try to be good at football. Randomly pulling this example out, East Carolina has two mega rich alums that I know of off the top of my head. One of them is, uh, I think, the CEO or founder of something, a Golden Corral. And the other one is Vince McMahon. If Vince McMahon decides to wake up one day and say ECU football is about to be good, ECU football will be good. 
not every school has a Vince McMahon, but they got somebody nearby or adjacent to that just about. And so these new rich people who want to show off and want to raise in status amongst these people, a whole lot of them are going to be throwing money to get people to come play football at schools that you don't have a very high regard for. There's a whole contingent of people out there who view what you're describing as the Wild West, right? Players go to the highest bidder. But we've done stories on Real Sports about a whole bunch of kids at Auburn getting the bag. Reggie Bush got a house and a car. I mean, this is not new. It's just happening in a more taxable, legalized fashion now, right? Yeah, it's going to be different. It will be a bit new, right? Because now some of these numbers, I think, are going to be kind of crazy because of where the money can now come from. Like, it doesn't just really have to come from a person or have to come from an agent or somebody doing this now. Like, actual companies can do this, right? So I do think that that part will make it somewhat different. But no, there's been some level of money getting thrown around in this game for a very, very, very long time because you can't stop money. There's a value for these guys' services. You're not going to be able to stop a market that exists. Well, to that point, one thing that I think gets lost in all this is that schools still aren't paying a dime to their players. Right? It's all coming from these outside businesses. But in college football this year, you know, Bomani, we saw universities paying hundreds of millions in buyout money so coaches could hop from job A to job B. The machine is still humming. So I guess I'd ask, do you think NIL will suffice as necessary reform? Or is this just a gateway to the NCAA eventually being forced to actually share revenue? Well, I'm still wondering if slash when they'll actually be forced to share revenue, but I think we are 100% aligned on the larger point, which is the great con of this is that the NCAA fought so hard to stop other people from paying players, making it easy for you to ignore that the billions that they get for the television deals, they still don't have to give up a piece of. They still don't. Now, the thing with the coaches and all that salary is always interesting because It's also what's happening with the NIL stuff is reflected in the coaching market. Also, these asset gains that these people have made, they're also throwing that around at coaches. Like the idea that Ole Miss has a coach that they're paying seven and a half million dollars. Like that's a significant change. That's a program that has never had that kind of money. It wasn't that long ago that seven and a half million dollars make the highest paid coach in college football, right? People have the money to burn and they like to burn it on this stuff. But the institutions themselves still don't actually have to pay anybody. And I don't know why it is that there are so many people who are like, I'm okay with name, image, and likeness, but they also are indifferent, perhaps, about the idea that the schools get to come up on this money and don't have to come off a single dime of it. That is still a wildly problematic proposition. Well, let's change gears. We spent a lot of time, Bomani, in 2020 discussing activism in sports that seemed to fade from view this year why do you think that is just a different set of social circumstances you know like i think one activism is exhausting for the actual activists you know like it's it's not an easy thing to take on the fights of other people while also being quite a visible person and everything else like there was a larger american social movement that was going on in 2020 with george floyd and that social movement is really not present now. COVID has kind of dominated that. Like you can make the argument that there is a measure of activism is the people, the pro-vaccine and the anti-vaccine. Like those are the activities that they are engaging in. Like, you you know, that's something that one could say. 2020 also was a presidential election year. So that's going to bring a lot of those issues up to the forefront in a much different way. I don't, the question always becomes after a year like that, what are the things that people are doing that we honestly aren't even paying that much attention to anymore 
because we can only consume so much of it also. Like there's it, a whole lot of people that we saw out in front last year might be doing the Lord's work without us even knowing it right now. And that's not necessarily a reflection of them or of us. Well, for all those athletes who are still doing work and maybe in the shadows who are passionate about causes here at home, we've also gotten Olympic Games coming up in China. And from what I can tell, we hear very little from prominent athletes about things abroad, like the abuse of the Uyghurs or what's happened in Shanghai. Do you sense a degree of hypocrisy at all in the way modern athletes talk about social or political issues, sometimes selectively? No, nah, because everybody does it sometimes selectively. I think that would be argument number one. I don't know how fair it is to expect the average American or even the average athlete to be so familiar with what is going on in China, right? I think there are a lot of people who, the people who put the weight on athletes about not saying enough about China, I hear them say a lot more about athletes not talking about China than I typically hear them themselves talking about China. Right. Like it just it doesn't feel like people like really mean that. Now, I do think that there's a a lot of people in this country who are very concerned about the notion of a Chinese superpower and want some measure of pushback there and want people to kind of advance that cause. The tricky thing about China is it reminds me of something I read. Somebody wrote about trying to boycott anybody that advertises with the NFL and ultimately realizing that to do that, he would probably have to stop using the Internet because Amazon's AWS is so much of the backbone of the internet that that's what you would have to do to boycott NFL sponsors. Like, what actual pushback are you going to be able to give against China? Like, if you were like, I'm not going to use any product that involves any dealing with China, I mean, I maybe some people like making their own clothes. Like, it's not really that easy to pull this sort of thing off. And so I think that we're asking when people ask for that out of athletes and talk about whether they're being selective in what they discuss, LeBron James, I think, is the example a lot of people point to. And what I always say about LeBron on that is, never forget, LeBron wore I Can't Breathe t-shirt in warm-ups at a game in Brooklyn after Eric Garner was killed and didn't say anything in Cleveland where he lived and worked about Tamir Rice. Nobody said anything to LeBron about how you going to talk about this one and not talk about that one. Nobody did that. But when people start saying, why don't you get on everything? No one has ever used that standard on everyone. They have only used that standard on people that they wish would stop talking about this one thing. And you mentioned the matter of expectations, right? There always seems to be this clear divide. Some fans want athletes to use their platform to affect change. Others want sports purely as escapism, entirely independent from other aspects of society. Do you sense that that line is moving in terms of what most people want or expect from the modern athlete? Nah, I think most people, by and large, want the game to be good, right? Like, they they overwhelmingly want to enjoy watching them play. There's always going to be a subset of people, and I think those people are probably more vocal than they used to be, who want athletes to take up a larger mantle. There are always going to be those people. I don't know how many of those people there are, though, like what percentage of the pie they actually are or how terribly different it is. The the thing I think that's changed now is it's a lot easier for those people if they so desire to speak on matters and do it publicly, which then shines a different light on the people who decide not to, because it's just as easy for you if you so decided. Right. And so it puts those people in a position to be judged harshly in ways that they may not have been judged before. But I don't know how many people are actually judging them. Maybe it is the impact of like social media, but it just seems to me that this is somewhat cyclical where there was that era of 
Kareem and Jim Brown and Ali, and then you had prominent star athletes who at least outwardly seemed very apolitical, Jordan, Tiger, Magic Johnson. And now you have LeBron, you have notable athletes who who at least are leaning into that a bit more, and it seems maybe that that has shifted slightly back to where it was decades ago. Yeah, well, the 80s... The 80s coming, really all of that coming out of the shadows of the 60s, where I think a lot of people just kind of got burnt out on a lot of that stuff, right? They did a lot of it. It took a lot of energy. And just you just look at what society was, like the hedonistic 1970s coming on the heel of the 1960s, for example. And then the 80s, all about stacking up your money. The 90s kind of, you know, got into a broader, more touchy-feely space of sorts. And yeah, you're right. Michael Jordan, for example, is the ultimate. We didn't really hear him necessarily talk about anything that was that important. But when you throw out the names that you threw out, that wasn't that many people. Right. You know, like like there were definitely prominent people whose names we knew and were products of different times that we saw get out and do and say all of those things. And I think part of the discussion of who you see and how many of them that you see in those moments is really reflective of the larger time. So, again, 2020 was a year that you were going to hear from a lot of people. 2021, we're not hearing from nearly as many of them. I don't think they became different people. I think the circumstances right. had changed. So if there's Jim Crow in the 1980s, is Michael Jordan quiet about it? Mm-hmm. My guess is probably not. In an effort to help fans, reporters, others appreciate the emotional stress a lot of these athletes bear, some have made it a point in this past year to speak out more strongly about mental health, notably Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, some prominent players, as you know, in the NBA, the NFL. Do you think that conversation is just having a moment in time or cutting through in a way that will have meaningful staying power? I think it'll probably have staying power, but I think that the discussion about that is where the staying power is. And perhaps this is an example of privilege and like limitations in who I interact with on a day-to-day basis. But I feel like the stigma of like acknowledging that you're having mental health issues is largely dissipated. Like I don't see too many examples of people truly like being ridiculed for what they think is a legitimate mental health issue. Like if they think you've been a little soft a week in a moment, you're still going to get some hell for that. But like if you have a problem or a thing, shall we say, I do think that there is a pretty strong level of empathy and sympathy that people receive now that wasn't the case 15, 20 years ago. Like we have to keep in mind that part of why the discussion is much more prominent now about mental health is because these people who are in their early 20s were raised by a generation where that stigma was already starting to recede. Like these kids then pop up in a vacuum and all of a sudden start deciding to talk about their own mental health. There's a level of encouragement that they receive from parents. And so to me, that has all been a process. Now, How is that going to apply to the way that we view athletes is going to be interesting because a significant part of athletic success has always been something that we would have characterized as mental strength, right? Like, I don't want to say that what these people are saying, like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, for example, I'm not saying it's the opposite of strength. I'm saying, but the way that we characterize and the way we think about athletes and Jordan, for example, is about that unshakable mental toughness. Like, that's something that we think about. And so... What'll be interesting is watching people balance the idea that, yes, there is a such thing perhaps as being mentally tough and having a value for that. And if someone, for whatever reason, whether it be temporary or whatever, is not in a place where they can do that, can we acknowledge that simply as a fact rather than judge those people for not being positively exceptional? 
You know, and I think that there's room to do both of those things. Like if somebody says, look, I just didn't have it. There needs to be a broad acknowledgement that sometimes people just don't have it and not go to the place that we go to reflexively in the way that we talk about sports, which is finger wagging judgment. Going back quickly to Naomi Osaka, you know, her message centered not only on mental health, but it spoke to the strained relationship between media and the athletes they cover, calling into question what responsibility an athlete actually has to the press. And it seems these days with social media, with the Players' Tribune, with big-time athletes running their own production companies, the modern sports figure needs the traditional media less than ever. Is that all good in your eyes, or does that come at a cost? Oh, it definitely comes at a cost, and it comes at a cost to the athletes, I think. What you put out, people got to believe, you know? And so a carefully manicured image certainly has a value, but that's not really that interesting. And I think people care more about you being interesting than they care about you being perfect. And we can come up with lots of examples that fit this. Like, it's the low-risk play to go with perfect. But interesting, when you think about the great autobiographies, for example, because that's what all these folks are doing, like they're putting out their own documentaries that they produce themselves, it's becoming like a new proxy for the autobiography. When you think about the great autobiographies that people really remember, it's the ones that tell you something about them. Like Miles Davis' autobiography is one of the most revered autobiographies in music. And it just basically could be entitled, I, Miles Davis, am a pretty terrible person. And he just runs it up and down. It didn't make anybody stop listening to Miles Davis music. It ain't stop anybody from talking about Miles Davis as a legend. Miles Davis has a reputation, you know, known for beating his wives, one of whom a very famous woman that is beloved in American society. Said it all, people still rock with him. For better or worse, they still did. Like, you don't have to make your stuff perfect in order to be someone that people like. You really just don't have to do that. And so I get why they want to not just protect their images, but also they want to get in on the money because a whole lot of this is media people making money off of their stories and them not getting paid for it. So I get where it comes from, but there is a value to a neutral accounting of you if you exist in this space that will always be there. And I think eventually there's going to be a better recognition from a lot of these athletes that it will serve them more to offer themselves for the judgment of others. Like, it's going to help. It's probably not even going to ultimately go that bad. All right, I want to wrap up, Omani, by going through some superlatives, giving you a chance to hand out some 2021 awards. You ready? All right. All right. What's the best team you watched this past year? Who best team I watched in 2021? That's actually a very difficult question. Because, like, we ain't really have great ones this go-around. Like, like everybody's just kind of, like, in there. I guess, if, if even if it was only for a day, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in their home stadium in the Super Bowl, when I remember I had picked the Chiefs all week, and I looked up and saw who the Chiefs were putting on the offensive line, and I was like, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> I was very, very incorrect. All right, best individual athletic performance of the year. Oh, you got to go with Giannis closing out against Phoenix. I mean, he put up 50 to take it to the crib. That, that, that's hard to beat. One sports figure who you did not expect to be talking about much in 2021, but for better or worse, was a prominent part of the conversation. Didn't expect to talk about it in 2021, but talked about way too much. Oh, that actually might be Cole Beasley. Like, he stopped talking about this stuff, so we don't talk about him anymore. But I definitely spend more time talking about Cole Beasley than I ever made. He used to play for the Cowboys, and we ain't talk about him. I ain't never think I'd talk about him this much just because he'd be out here saying stupid stuff. 
All right, I'll leave this one open-ended. What's the worst thing you saw or heard in sports this year? I mean, could it be all things Urban Meyer in Jacksonville? Could be. His first move. So this strength coach, they got fired for rampant racism. I'm going to bring him to my NFL team. That's how it started, and it has not gotten better. All right, give me a prediction for 2022, a player, a coach, or even a trend that leaves a significant mark on the coming year. All right, I would say that my 2022 prediction for next year is that Nikola Jokic is not going to win the MVP, even though he is better than he was in the previous year, which is going to actually lead to a fascinating discussion of how much better can one guy get before we actually admit that he's good. Like, what does he have to do to get into the same class of the top five guys that we talk about in the NBA? Because literally, he can't do anything else but become a different person. All right. Well, Bomani, with that, we'll put 2021 in the books. Thanks again for joining us to uh, help wrap it all up. No problem, man. You guys have a good one. And don't forget to get over to HBO Max to watch the latest episode of Real Sports, that annual year-end special, recalling some of the most colorful, compelling, and important stories aired over the past year. And that'll do it for this edition of the Real Sports Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening throughout our first year. We'll have much more to come in 2022. I'm your host, Max Gershberg, and on behalf of everyone here working on the show, we wish you all a happy new year, and we'll see you next time.